welcome back to A Farther Room. The episode I have for you today is an interview I did with Phil Murphy. Phil is somebody who has spent a career in missions. He currently is a director of a nonprofit organization in Florida called Heart Village. And in the past, he spent over 20 years as a missionary in Haiti, where his family helped run an orphanage down there in the mountains outside of Port-au-Prince. Our conversation was very good, and I'm going to get right into it. Here's our interview starting now. Thank you again for... uh, agreeing to do this. So there are a few things that have been weighing on my mind quite a bit this year and they'll drive, you know, the next few episodes, but one of them is uh, gratitude. Um, this, this year has been difficult on a lot of people, but in my view, it's in, it's in difficult times when Sometimes we see opportunities to be thankful for things that we have. Um, sure. I'm going to tell a quick story just to start us off, and then we'll get to some questions for you. I remember back in March okay. when COVID, you know, all the hysteria got in full swing and the lockdowns had started. And, um, you know, it was two weeks to stop the spread. Remember that? <laughs> Um, and you know, people panicked, understandably, we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know what was going on. And, you know, I think it's accurate to say right or wrong that we, we panicked. So suddenly it became very difficult to go and buy normal things that we think of Uh as routine, you know? Uh, I remember I went to the grocery store during the lockdown in my state and there was very little meat in stock. Um, No ground beef, no chicken, other than weird stuff like lizard livers and feet and stuff like that. A little bit of pork and a little bit of ground turkey and that was it. And I remember standing there in the store and observing people there were others who had come back to the meat section and were just astounded at the bare shelves we saw. And I heard one guy say, what the hell is this? Like in a really frustrated, like, come on, where's my ground beef guys? Uh Um, you know, and as some time went on, I reflected on the fact that, you know, there are a lot of people in the world who don't have a supermarket to go to anytime they want some groceries. They don't have food to eat in the first place. And here we're frustrated. We don't have any chicken tenders. We, (laughs) We don't own any chickens. We didn't help raise any chickens. We didn't kill any chickens or process them. We didn't help transport the meat to the store, but we always expect it to be there. So I would, I would start off by just asking if you feel like I'm off base with that, or if you would kind of agree with, um, 
my take on that. And, and do you ever run into people in your neck of the woods that kind of are the same way down in Florida? Oh, absolutely. I would agree a hundred percent. I mean, after living in Haiti, I mean, you have a different perspective and not just Haiti, but anybody that's lived anywhere around the world outside the, the United States, what we call the developed world. Um, you realize that people are much more intimate with their food and closer to their food. And uh, even though they're reliant upon it, just like we are, uh, they're much more involved in the process. And like you said, variety and those kinds of choices that we take so much for granted, mm -hmm. they don't have. And they're, they're blessed just to have something to eat today. Right. And I brought you on because I know you would be a unique voice in this discussion. I want to get into some of the questions I have for you. So if you would, will you just tell our listeners kind of a summary of your background in ministry? You've been in missions for many years. Yeah, so my name is Phil Murphy, and uh, I'm from Mississippi. Um, and at a very young age, um, I felt God was calling me to missions. And that's a whole other story, I guess. But I was always intrigued by the missionaries that came to the church. And um, as I went through junior high and high school, I started thinking about a career and where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do. And missions had kind of left me. Uh, and when I came to Florida to the university here, which back then was Warner Southern College, is now Warner University. Um, I was reminded of that pulling on my heartstrings about going anywhere God wanted me to get, go and doing whatever God wanted me to do. And, um, and I ran into some really unique professors in college that kind of rekindled that idea that there are people in the world that are really hurting that need to know that God loves them and they also need help. They need real physical help. Mm -hmm. And um, so through that whole experience, um, I was a part of starting what I am now the director of, the Hunger Education and Resource Training uh, here in Florida, uh, known as the HEART Program. And uh, my wife, and uh, actually before I met my wife, I was a part of the very first students that went out on the Warner University property, and we began building basically a simulated developing world village where we would... Uh, where we do have a, a simulated village and we uh, kind of mimic community living and have a, have a work on a sustainable farm and we teach lots of different things basically with the idea that we're trying to prepare people for going and living in a developing world situation so that the, um, so the culture shock and the adjustment isn't nearly as bad when they go and also so that we give them some skills of those basic things that, that people, like we're talking about, that they actually are in tune with and daily trying to meet their needs mm -hmm. very actively, not just going to the grocery store, but yeah. raising their own food, dealing with diseases, those kinds of things. And then my wife and I, we met 
uh, through that through, through the Heart Program indirectly, and um, we had both been involved in Haiti. So, just long story short, we ended up uh, getting married and had been married a couple of years, and saw an opportunity to uh, to go and serve in Haiti uh, with a children's home. And we went down to help a lady who had already started one. Had been she'd been in she'd been in Haiti for oh I don't know fifty or sixty years, and she was not doing well. Knew that she was not in good health and needed help. So <clears throat> we began raising support and uh, preparing to go. Our daughter was a year old, and this woman passed away. And the people that were there, familiar with the situation, said. Their kids really need you come quick. So we mm-hmm. sold everything we had. We we had already sold everything and were headed in that direction. And when we found out she died, we just packed our bags and went on down. And um, we got there, and the property was being claimed by a million different people, and the government was involved. So we were really just concerned about the kids. So. We took 19 of the youngest kids from that uh, home situation, and we went and lived with another missionary for almost a year in a very small home, 19 kids, 17 girls, and two boys. Wow. And then God just, you know, we just by faith stepped out, and God provided little by little. I've got millions of stories to share um, of how God provided uh, for us, and so Within the course of that first year, that was in 1986, so about halfway through 1987, we had enough money to rent our own place and move the kids there, and basically they had the, they owned the clothes on their backs, they had school uniforms, backpacks, a church uh, outfit, and very little else, and mm-hmm. we packed all of our lives into five duffel bags. And, uh, but again, as we moved into that house, we didn't have beds or anything sleeping on the floor and God provided people heard about us and what we were doing and, and would send us money to purchase beds for the children. And so long story short, again, we ended up being in Haiti from 1986 until 2007. Hmm. And when we left in 2007, one of the girls, uh, Tanya, who was one of the original of the 19 that we mm-hmm. were blessed to to serve. She was 12 years old when we went, and by the time we left in 2007, she and her husband uh, were the directors of the orphanage, and they still are to this day. And uh, they're doing a great job. And we ended up raising over 54 children while we were there, and touching lots of other children in communities. And in fact, just on Facebook in the last month, you know, because I I was sick a few weeks ago and posted that I wasn't feeling well and one of the girls that we just helped for a short period of time. She didn't live in the orphanage. We just kind of sponsored her, helped her at her through school, and and she would come over and spend time with the kids. It was kind of like, you know, a off campus kind of a, a an orphan, I guess, in a way. Mm-hmm. She reached out to me, and she she blessed me the uh, the last week by telling me that you know her dad had died when she was younger and. She's always thought of me of her dad, you know, and it just blew me away. <laughs> wow. She felt that way. And she, she calls me dad when she writes me, dad, how you doing? <laughs> and uh, so, so we did that. And then now, uh, so we left Haiti in 2007 and um, I came back to the United States. We did 
and I became the director of the heart program where I had trained and, and worked uh, back in the 80s. And um, so since 2010, I've been the director of the heart program and uh, love what I do and uh, been involved in you know, several hundred people since 2010 and going all around the world and some serving right here in the United States as well. So, and when I was in Haiti too, I will tell you this, I, I did take a lot of things I learned at heart agriculturally. So I got involved, especially the last 10 years or so that when we were in Haiti and living up in the mountains, helping local farmers with everything from pig projects to uh, road building projects, Mm-hmm. Started help get some rabbit projects going, helping them with their gardens and teaching how to start tree nurseries and using composting teas and and uh, natural fertilizers rather than than purchasing fertilizers. Just all just the whole gamut, lots of different things. I want to um, quickly share some memories I have. Um, I I actually went down with my dad. Uh, to Haiti to visit Phil and his family twice when I was a teenager. And I remember as soon as I stepped off the plane in Port-au-Prince, I knew I had stepped into a different world. Um, You know, you picked us up at the airport, and we drove through the city towards the mountains. I saw some things I'll never forget. Um things that are commonplace there. Um, people people who had nothing, like they literally have nothing, no food, no water, no shelter. Um, people who are quite obviously hungry just sitting on the side of the road, um, just sitting there, you know, with no next steps, um, sitting there with children some of the time and no idea how to feed the kids, much less themselves. Um, I remember seeing a man who was missing his feet, and he was a he was a double foot amputee, and he had used paint cans as feet. So he he put mm. his legs down into these cans and kind of packed stuff in around his stump so he could walk around, and. Yeah. That's what served as prosthetics, you know, the high, the latest and greatest technology. Um, but these these are sites you don't really see in our country, um, and they're the they're the rule. They're not the exception to the rule. Um, you know what? When I was down, I remember we stayed in a house with no running water, no air conditioning, no toilets, of course, and it was very nice by Haiti standards. Um, and at, and at night the rule was just to keep your mattress pulled away from the wall to try and prevent tarantulas and other stuff walking on you. Um, but I, I, I look back on those trips and I'm so thankful that I went down there that my family made it possible for me to go down there. And, and you and your family lived it for years, you know, so I imagine just, Maybe at first it was, and you can tell me, you know, when you first got down there, was it difficult to adjust um, or did it, did it seem like it was kind of an easier transition than you thought it would be? I would say it was 
tougher than I thought it would be because I had we had lived in at the heart program and had uh, studied there and trained there. It did help us, but still going onto the field is a, is a lot different. And I tell people all the time, if it hadn't been for heart, I doubt that we would have made it because we were we were more prepared. Uh, but without that preparation, I, I think we would have been sunk. But it, it's difficult because. You know, you you described it as stepping off the plane and being in a different, a different reality. And I tell mm-hmm. people, somewhat like going to Jupiter. Yeah, <laughs> it's like <laughs> landing there, and you're you kind of think you know what it's going to be like, and you kind of hope you know what it's going to be like. But when you get there, and you're trying to, uh, especially in our situation, we were thrown into being parents for. To 19 children of another culture mm-hmm. and the oldest one was 12 and the youngest one was probably five or six and we had no parenting skills i mean we had a one-year-old and um and basically it was like here's 19 kids have fun you know <laughs> and and so like you said those those things that we're used to going to the grocery store having a local bank um you know, a, a really reliable transportation of some kind. Uh, we didn't have those. And so we had to learn, okay, our grocery store at that time in Port-au-Prince was the local open market, which was downtown. So one of us would have to get on a car. If we wanted to get meat for the children, we'd have to, we didn't have a vehicle, so we'd have to go out and catch a local tap-tap, which is... Mm their version of a kind of a taxi is public transportation. It's a pickup truck with a, with a top on the back and you'd have to go down there and then you had to, you know, make sure you had money exchanged already and you had to wade through jillions of people and go to the open market and try and find somebody that you felt like their meat was fresher and safe to eat because it's just, there's no mm-hmm. refrigeration or coolers or anything. It's just open meat on a table. Yeah. And there's flies everywhere, you know, and so you do that and then you buy the you buy your fruits and vegetables and things and then you go back home and that's pretty much a day. And so it was a it was a huge adjustment. Huge adjustment. Can you just and I don't want to spend too much time on just the daily routine because you've touched on a lot of, a lot of it already, but can you reflect on what was a normal day like for you there? You know, I know there there were always new challenges and different things happening, but was there some kind of routine you developed while living there? It's almost like more of your time has to be dedicated towards just surviving and having food and water versus, you know, time in the States that can be spent doing other things. Correct. So one of the things that you quickly learn in Haiti um, is that I would make a list of maybe 10 things that I needed to accomplish uh, for the day. And I'm talking about things that you would think of as like ministry goals or things that you needed as a family or whatever. And in Haiti, if you got one of the 10 things done, you felt really accomplished <laughs> because <laughs> things were so difficult. 
and then in contrast, I come back to the United States and I can have I can have 50 things on my list and get them all done today, and I don't really feel accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing I still struggle with. But a typical day for us, because we had the orphanage children and then our own children, was getting everybody up and at them and off to school. And we quickly, within a couple of years, we kind of came up with a system where the older kids in the home were responsible for the younger ones and they got rewards for that to make sure everybody was up and fed and the house was cleaned and everybody was off to school. And then once the kids were all off to school, then we had a little bit of time at the house. This was in the early days, you know, without the kids being there, but most of that time was spent prepping for when they came home. Mm-hmm. So what would the evening activities be like? Um, dealing with their schoolwork, helping, helping them with their studies. We also incorporated, in those early days, we incorporated a lot of Bible study and and uh, worship every night. We had worship with the kids every night. And uh, as they got older, those responsibilities became the responsibilities of the older kids. And so it shifted a little bit to where in the beginning we were, it was parenting. We were parenting 19 kids and and our own daughter um, and also trying Mm -hmm. to do the legal work for the orphanage and connect with other ministries and stuff, which again, very, very difficult to do on a daily basis to get anything accomplished. But then towards the end, it became more of the home was kind of functioning on its own, and we were involved, but not quite as much involved. So it allowed us to venture out, and we started doing more community things and becoming involved in in more activities. And so I would say that most of our days, though, were often filled with what you talked about is just survival, mm-hmm. you know, making sure the car is still running, yep. supplies are purchased for the home, and you know, so, you know, it's and it's like what you were talking about when COVID hit. It was not an unusual thing for us to go somewhere to get something and then not be there, not have it, mm-hmm. and maybe have to go to three or four different places, or to order it, or whatever. Um, just really you really couldn't rely on things and sometimes you could and then there were other times because of political situations or whatever going on in the country that you couldn't find certain things so it was an adventure every day you never knew what you were gonna get into or what you were able able to find the things that you needed or not it was just you have to look at it as an adventure otherwise you just you fold under the pressure, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, re- remind me, um, you already said it, but I can't, I've already forgotten the total number of years you were there. So we were there for 21 years. 21. That's right. So I imagine, you know, being there for so long and then making the decision to leave and come back to the United States was probably a difficult decision for y'all. When you got back, was it 
it's kind of funny to ask, but was it kind of culture shock to come back to the U.S. from where you had been? Yes. Yeah, so my personal opinion and Lonnie's as well, and a lot of missionaries I talked to, I think would agree with me, but especially for for us, <clears throat> coming back was probably just as hard, if not harder. So that's called reverse culture shock. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has been harder uh, for us than actually the culture shock of going there. We started adjusting after being there a year, and then two years it got better. And uh, and then it was, you know, kind of cruising after that. And, and that became home and normal for us. Coming here has been much more difficult because the reason um, reverse culture shock, shock is often more difficult for people is because you think of it as you're returning home. You're going back to where your family is, your friends are, mm-hmm. where your church is where you're from, but what you don't realize is you've changed, your perspective has changed, yeah. home, ha- home has changed, um, their perspective has changed, and, and so when you come back, you're expecting to kind of land on solid ground, and, and it's not solid anymore, and so a lot of people end up going back on the field. I just was reading today where a friend of ours that we knew in Haiti, they were there. Gosh, she and her husband probably moved there in the thir- 20s or no, 30s or 40s um, and started a ministry. And uh, we we knew them. They, they had a, a, a ministry not too far from the orphanage there in the mountains. And uh, you probably remember, we probably went to the Baptist mission while you were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they started this couple started that she just passed away uh like yesterday or day before hmm. and uh, they they left Haiti before we did in 2007 but they ended up coming back and she actually died in Haiti because she just decided you know what I'm going to go back to what I know and the people I love Mm-hmm. And so she died in the hospital that they actually helped building it started, even though she could have been here, you know, with her with her her blood family and with uh, with being in the in a country with probably better you know better doctors and hospitals, but she chose to be there because it seems more familiar, and uh, and it is a it becomes a part of you. So yeah, coming back here was really hard. I had a better adjustment time. Than my wife did because I took the job at heart and, be, and immediately became engaged out there at the farm, mm-hmm. uh, the village, and there, so you're with like-minded people and and it feels more like Haiti does, and so it felt a little more comfortable. My wife was thrown right into the public school system here uh, in in Florida, and boy, oh boy, is that a, is that a huge change. <laughs> Uh, she had taught at a she had taught at a small private Christian school in Haiti where we were very intimately involved and uh, you know you know everybody and you know all the parents and it's kind of like you're part of a community and then you come here and it's kind of sink or swim you're on your own 
and uh, dealing with the different perspectives. And uh, so she she would say that it took her at least I would say five years before she felt like she could she was willing to stay here. You know, I <clears throat> I don't mean to put you on the spot with an overly broad question, but you know, as you kind of look back and reflect on the the time that you spent um, in Haiti, you know, most people aren't going to experience something like that in their lives. You know, most people um, are born someplace and they live, you know, in the same country for their entire lives and they, they just don't, they have blinders on and they don't really understand what the rest of the world is like. Can you offer some advice to people who are living in first world countries um, just regarding, you know, I guess how to approach your life in a way that, you know, you have some gratitude for it? Yeah, I, I think that the, the biggest thing that I learned in Haiti is that there's always somebody else way worse off than you are. Um, and we should be thankful for the blessings that we have. I'll give you an example. I remember, you probably know this about me, but I've been sick a jillion times. I've had malaria, stopped counting it 24 times, typhoid twice, hepatitis. Hmm. One weekend, I the kidney stone, had malaria, and dysentery all in the same weekend. I think I lost 30 pounds from Friday to Monday. <laughs> it was awful. But I remember, JP, in one of those times, lying in my bed, and I was kind of having a pity party uh, and having a conversation with God. And it struck me how blessed I was because I had a wife who was educated enough that she learned from a nurse how to give me my medication, to give me a shot, how to measure the medication so she gave me the right painkiller and the right amount, and that she knew how to measure different kinds of medicines, take my temperature, when to call the doctor, mm-hmm. and she could take she could take care of me, and we could afford those medications. And I thought about some of my pastor friends, some of my other friends who lived out in the provinces who made pennies, and they didn't have those blessings. They were, and they were just as faithful or more faithful to God than I was. They were living on faith. They were working you know, as farmers, and they were serving their congregation as a leader in the community and the pastor of their church. And when they got sick, they didn't, they couldn't afford the medications. And if they needed to be transported to a hospital, they didn't own a vehicle. I did. Mm. They didn't have the educated spouse to measure the medications and to have a doctor, a personal physician or a nurse just blocks away that they could call or run over to their house and ask for advice. You know, they didn't have those opportunities. And it made me realize of all the blessings I had, you know, there were times in Haiti when we would have to go days without electricity because the power company you know, didn't have any electricity to send into the city <laughs> because of droughts or whatever, or broken generators. Mm-hmm. And yet, again, I thought about my 
friends who lived out in areas in Haiti where they didn't have any electricity and they had no refrigeration and uh, they couldn't rely on, on any of those things that we take for granted. And so even though I would complain at times, I would realize there are some people that, that have greater needs than I do. And, and uh, I feel, I tell you, living here in the United States, I feel spoiled rotten with all the things that we take for granted here. Mm-hmm. Uh, electricity 24 hours a day, hot water. I tell people all the time, one of my most worshipful moments every day is when I take a shower because I turn on that water and I can turn it to one side and I get the hottest water I can stand. And in Haiti, if we wanted hot water, my okay. neighbors couldn't have any hot water. But if I wanted hot water, I had to take a pan of water in it, put it on the stove and heat it up, take it in the bathroom with me and mix it with some cooler water. And that was my hot shower and my hot bath. And you didn't always want to do that. Um, and so I'm very thankful. And so taking a shower now is almost a, it is a worshipful experience for me because I'm so thankful. And I think about my friends and the kids and others, my neighbors that are still there that, you know, they, they don't have that, that, that privilege that, that we have. And, you know, what's amazing to me is a lot of the people that you meet in Haiti and in, in places like Haiti are some of the happiest, most content people you've ever met. And absolutely. And, you know, it's so just to think about, I've read several different times that in first world countries, there is a lot higher rate of depression and suicide than there is in third world countries, you know, where, where they don't have basic things. And I've wondered why that is for so long. And I, you know, when we had our phone call, um, a few weeks back, it's kind of a preliminary discussion. I brought up sometimes the best way I can describe it is this is a thesis. Of course, I feel like for thousands and thousands of years, millions of years, probably, you know, human beings were just trying to survive. You know, you know, history is struggle, and it's only been in the last couple hundred years that we've been able to have a lot of the privileges that we have nowadays with so much innovation and technology and market economies where, you know, if I want to make some kind of dish from Indonesia tonight, I can go to Whole Foods and buy all the ingredients I need. And it's almost like after so long with not knowing, you know, where your next meal is coming from and just struggling to survive. Now we have everything at our fingertips all the time. And it's almost like people don't know how to handle it. It's almost like struggle is part of who we are. And if, and if we're not struggling against something you know, maybe we feel like we have less of a purpose. Maybe that's overanalyzing it. And I think there's some truth to that. And I think it also has to do with the fact that when, you know, if 
if you always if you always supply something like raising a child, if you if you always supply everything for your child and you never never require them to exercise or to do anything, they would just turn into a block of flesh. You know, they, they wouldn't develop <laughs> any muscle or, or or anything. And um, it, it's that way with us. You know, we have to exercise our faith. We have to exercise our muscles. And uh, one, one of the things, I don't know if we talked about this before, but one of the things that we talk about at heart when we talk about poverty, <clears throat> one of the greatest definitions that I've ever heard of poverty is a lack of options. Hmm. And so what I and what I what I tell people, JP, is is just simply think about this. Don't you have to get really deep into that conversation? Just think about every day waking up. I wake up tomorrow morning. My friends in Haiti out in the countryside that I went to visit often and, and uh, love to sit and, and drink coffee with them, their breakfast usually consisted of a cup of locally grown coffee, which is delicious, and a piece of bread or maybe a sweet potato that they had grown. That was their only option for breakfast. And if they were really blessed, they might have had a, a chicken or a turkey egg to go with their breakfast. Now, you and I can wake up tomorrow morning, and we can cook breakfast from our refrigerator. We can have pancakes, sausage. We can have grits. We can have oatmeal. We can have cereal just right in our house. Mm -hmm. Then if we would like, then if we would like, we could go to IHOP, and we could sit down and have a, the same kind of meal prepared for us. Or we can go to McDonald's, and we can go through the drive through and we could pick up something really fast. I mean, the options for us are out of this world. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, that speaks volumes to what you're, what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, and I'm guilty. And, yet, and I'll back up just a second. One, one of the things that I think about, I think you're trying to get a, the point across too, is that even though we have all those options, if we go to IHOP or somewhere and they don't have our blueberry pancakes, we're mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to speak to the and manager. And our day is ruined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, every, every person has challenges. Each person has his or own set of problems that are unique and they all have to be dealt with. And, you know, there are people in this country who are, um, you know, as I mentioned, very depressed, contemplating suicide, you know, especially all the things that have happened this year. So that's very yeah. real. And my motivation sure. to, to bring this discussion forward is, you know, to reiterate a point. It's just, in my view, one of the best things you can do in order to deal with your own problems is try your best to develop a sense of perspective around them. You know, two, yeah. two things can be true at the same time. You can be going through a difficult or dark time in your life, but you can also be thankful for some things that you have. And mm. if you're able to do that, 
you know, if you're able to keep that sense of underlying gratitude, I feel like we're better equipped to take on our problems and fix them when we need to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 go ahead. Could I add something to that? Yeah. One of one of the things that I've been thinking about, re- it's not just recently, it's been a part of who I, I am, I guess, for 30 years or more, but I have been thinking about it a lot more lately, and that is with what's going on with COVID and everything. And and I am one of those people who's cautious. I'm, I'm one of those who's susceptible to it. I have a heart condition and some other health conditions, and I, I don't want to get sick. But so I don't so I don't go out and risk it and go to crowded places and mm-hmm. restaurants and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I will go. I will go like I did this past Sunday and help serve a meal and hand out food to somebody who's in need. I'll, I'll risk it for that reason. And I say that because I think that's one of the solutions to our problems too, is to get out and see other people in need mm-hmm. and, to, and to, to, to minister to them and to realize, man, I'm really blessed. Look at this person and I want to get to know this person and, and not as just a project, but a human being. And, um, you know, why are they there? And I'm here kind of a perspective. Yep. And I think that one of the greatest things we can do is give of ourselves to others, whatever that means, but getting outside of our, our woe is me and our pity party mm-hmm. and, uh, and giving to others and helping others. So, well, I feel like we could probably talk for about three more hours about this type of thing, <laughs> but um, I want to be conscious of your time. I know you're an hour ahead of we of where we are, so I really appreciate you taking the time to do this conversation. Um, I know that you know in the past we've sent one or two emails and. We haven't always agreed on everything, <laughs> um, but I think there are a lot of things that we do agree on, and you know, absolutely, I think it's important to acknowledge. You know, just as a race, I feel like it's important for us to acknowledge each other's humanity and to find common ground. And where there is common ground, explore it. You know. Yeah. Um, talk to talk to people and learn from people and um and maybe some at some point in the future we can do this again can you tell us um real quick before i let you go what's the um website for heart we are at uh, heartvillage.org h-e-a-r-t-v-i-l-l-a-g-e.org okay and we're also on facebook Okay. And it's out of is it Lake Wales? Yeah, we're we're loaded we're located in Lake Wales, Florida. We're on the property of Warner University. We are our own five oh one C three and we lease uh forty acres of land from Warner University and we are not not everyone takes it for credit, but we can be accredited through different colleges and universities. Okay. So if anybody is interested to learn more about Heart Village and 
Phil's current ministry, go to that website he just put out there or the Facebook page. And Phil, thanks again so much for doing this. I hope you have a good evening and I'll I'll talk to you again sometime soon. All right. Thank you for the opportunity. And if anybody um wants to know any more, they want to reach out to me uh on the on the the website, there's a place where you can send it to info and that comes directly to me. Okay. Great. That sounds good. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you.